8, 7, 6, 5. You have discovered the 542 and the Blue Podcast, discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher, Scott Lunsford. This is your returning 542 and the Blue Podcast producer, Victoria. Thank you for all the kind messages and support everyone has sent. 4, 3, 2, 1. Mr. Lunsford, you're on. Victoria, thank you, and welcome back. We had several messages asking where you were and if you were okay. Today's Shade of Blue for 542 in the Blue, we're going to look into the topic of the evils of gambling in the Appalachian Mountains. Now, according to the National Geographic, American Indian casinos aren't a new concept. Apparently, people were playing dice games in the New World as early as 5,000 years ago. Of course, we know gambling is a wagering of something of value on an event with an uncertain outcome. With the intent of winning the something of value, gambling requires three elements. Consideration, risk, and of course, a prize. The outcome is often immediate, such as the roll of the dice, spin of a wheel, or possibly the outcome of a sporting event. The concept of gambling itself dates back to the Paleolithic period before written history. And we do know that six-sided dice had been found in archaeological digs and dated to about 3000 BC. When I was working for the Asheville Police Department in the 1990s, I was at one time assigned to a special task force that was charged with community policing efforts in the Shiloh community of South Asheville. While doing a foot patrol around the community center there in Shiloh, or the Shiloh Community Center, one evening I stumbled across a dice game in progress behind the building. Of course, seeing me, everyone scattered, but one. One gentleman didn't run off. When I approached, there's quite a bit of cash and coins still lying on the ground and, of course, a set of dice. When confronted with the illegal activity, the gentleman responded by quoting scripture to me. Joshua 18.10 Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord, and there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal divisions. His point and his argument was that I was infringing on his religious freedom. Now, casting lots was and is a common practice in many cultures. The Bible relates where Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garment at the crucifixion. And throughout the Old and New Testament, we do read a lot about people casting lots when a decision had to be made. In most instances, of course, this was just a simple way of determining something impartially. Now, let's go back and look here in North Carolina, the Appalachian Mountains, Tennessee, and the like. Uh, Let's go back to 1901 for this particular shade of blue, or at least we're going to start there. In April of 1901, there was a push on law enforcement throughout the state of North Carolina to clamp down on illegal gambling. Gambling halls, or gambling dens, 
as the papers of the day reported them. I guess using the term gambling dens probably sold more newspapers and made them made the issue sound more evil as opposed to going to Charlie's Barbershop downtown and purchasing a lottery ticket or buying a tip on a tip board. In 1901, the North Carolina State Legislature passed a new anti-gambling law. It had two specific provisions to it that I find of interest. The provisions of the new law were put into force in several cities. The law is especially strong as to gambling in bar rooms, hotels, and private clubs. The anti-gambling law, if enforced, was thought would put an end to the gambling menace in the state of North Carolina. It was so strict and far-reaching in its provisions If not enforced, it was likely to get a city's mayor or the police chief or the police force into serious trouble. The bill was originally written by Senator B.F. Aycock and became law in March 1901. Though in effect that day, it really was not enforced in many towns and cities of the state owing to the fact that their officials, the mayors, the chief of police, did not quickly receive and secure copies of the law and familiarize themselves with its provisions. Ignorance of the law, no excuse? I don't know, but they seem to, from what I've read in the old newspapers from 1901, the mayors and town boards and aldermen figured that if they didn't actually read the law, the new law that went into effect, they wouldn't be held to it. Goldsboro was probably the first in the state to put the law into effect. At that time, Mayor Peterson began to enforce it almost immediately. In Raleigh, a month after the law went into effect, newspapers lauded that four of five public gambling concerns in the city of Raleigh were still there going full blast. And that's a direct quote from the newspaper headline, Full Blast. In reply to inquiries, the chief of police of Raleigh there stated that no special reports and actions as to gambling were as yet being taken from local policemen, as the mayor had not been able to secure a copy of the law. Just like I said, if we ignore it, maybe it'll go away. Nothing to see here, folks. The new law will require police officers to make sworn to reports as to gambling in their jurisdictions, and they have to do that on a regular basis. The code reads as follows, if any keeper of an ordinary or house of entertainment or a house wherein liquors are retailed, knowingly suffer any game at which money or property or anything of value is bet, whether the same fee in stake not to be played in such a house or on any part of the premises occupied therewith, or shall furnish persons so playing or betting on said premises with drink or other thing for consumption at that time of play, he shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and fine, not less than $500, and be in prison not less than six months. So you didn't have to be, as the owner of an establishment, the one running the game. 
But if you were caught with somebody in there running the game and you provided them with a drink or they ate a sandwich in your establishment, you could pick up a $500 fine and possibly spend six months in jail. Now, another section of the code was further amended by adding a part that said, any person who shall be convicted under this section shall, upon conviction, forfeit his license to do any business mentioned in this section will be forever debarred from doing any said business in the state of North Carolina and the court shall embody its judgment that such person has forfeited their said license and no bond, no board of county commissioners, board of town commissioners, or board or board of aldermen shall have the power or the authority to grant to such convicted person or his agent a license to do any of those businesses. So they were coming down hard on the business owners. And if you got caught and got busted, you couldn't operate in the state of North Carolina again. And apparently there was some problems in the past with town commissioners, board of uh town commissioners, county boards, uh, board of aldermen, apparently granting special privileges to individuals who lost their license to operate such establishments and allow them to operate in their jurisdiction. This kind of took care of that, so I'm surprised they didn't write a fee into that if a board of aldermen particularly did that and locked them up too, or county commissioner. The one provision of the new law in 1901 that I found really interesting is it shall be the duty of every police officer of the cities, towns, and villages of the state to make diligent inquiry and to exercise constant watchfulness to uncover whether any of the offenses stated in said ordinance, section D, in said sections are being committed and to make a report once a week under oath to the mayor or other chief officer of his city, town, or village whether such offenses are being committed. If any such police officer shall have known or have information that such offenses are being committed and shall fail or neglect to report same to their mayor or chief officer together with all the information that is known to him the person or persons committing place of commission of said offense and the names of witnesses said officer shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and upon conviction shall be fined or imprisoned and forfeit his office and it shall be the duty of such mayor or chief officer to require the said reports herein provided for and to require the same shall be verified by oath of such policemen. Any such mayor or chief officer of any of said cities, towns, or villages shall fail or neglect to require the reports herein mentioned or shall fail or neglect to require of such from police officers to verify the same under oath or shall refuse or neglect upon its appearing from such reports 
that there is probable cause to issue a warrant for the arrest of the offender, said mayor or chief officer shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and will be liable to a penalty of $500 to be recovered by suit in superior court in the county in which such offense or offenses have been committed. So, in the state law at that time, the Raleigh News and Observer in 1901 published a form that officers were to fill out. State of North Carolina, County of blank. We, the undersigned officers of the city of being duly sworn, say that we have no knowledge or information of any gambling going on in this city. That during the past week, we have diligently had in view the anti-gambling law and we are not aware of the violation of the provisions of this law. And the officer had to sign it and swear to it where it was dated and then they had a spot for the mayor to sign too. So apparently the state legislature thought gambling was such a serious issue that not only were they going to demand enforcement of the law, they were going to start locking up politicians and law enforcement officers for either turning a blind eye or not seeing what was going on in their jurisdiction. That's pretty heavy. This uh, came from an article from the News and Observer from April 1901. Found that very interesting. Now, let's move up a little bit to 1955 for this next shade of blue. This comes also from a uh, newspaper article, but it's an Asheville paper. Again, 1955. Headline, two of four persons found guilty in College Street gambling cases. Gambling cases resulting from a police raid at 102 College Street, April 1st, were tried in Asheville City Police Court. Of four defendants, one was found not guilty. All four defendants, Alex Bryant of the White Way Barbershop on College Street, John Midlands of North Pack Square, and R.T. Davis of Clayton Street. They all entered police of not guilty to a total of eight warrants carrying 12 counts. Mr. Elkins was found not guilty of a charge of operating a gambling house and was given two concurrent sentences of six months each on charges of operating a lottery and unlawful possession of lottery materials. The sentences would be suspended in event the defendant pays a fine of $1,000 in court cost by 9 a.m. tomorrow. So they were going to suspend the sentence after they get the thousand bucks out of them. Uh, Bryant was also not found guilty of the charge of conspiracy to operate a gambling house and several and several other counts of operating gambling gambling houses and operating a lottery. One count of aiding and abetting in the operation of a gambling house, and he was fined two hundred and fifty dollars in cost and given until the next morning to pay his fine. Midlands was found not guilty of all counts of aiding and abetting, but did get found guilty of operating a lottery and conspiracy to operate a gambling house and lottery. The testimony of the officers was quite interesting. The activity that went on. Now, this is College Street and Pack Square. 
both locations of the present day and the early day police department. Police department in 1955 is where it is today or was where it is today. Across the road from there, 103 and 102 College Street, Mr. Davison apparently subleased the property and claimed he had not had been associated with the place for quite some time. When the officers raided the establishment, actually it was two establishments, on April 2nd, following the arrest of the four men, police said they stripped the rear room at 103 College Street of an intercom communication system which was connected near a, a Western Union sports return ticker tape machine in the rear of the White Way Barbershop. Items also seized was a one-way glass door between the cafe section of the restaurant that was next to it and the rear room. The glass allowed somebody to see through to the street, but the observer would not be seen at all. A quantity of baseball lottery books, stubs and tickets were seized. A book in which serial numbers of tickets and lottery books and payouts were listed. And of course the Western Union ticker tape machine was also confiscated. All these items were introduced as evidence by the state in the court trial. A Western Union ticker tape machine, for those of you that aren't aware, is a almost like a fax machine. Using Morris code uh, or a variation of it, it would print out the sports and news information on a long strip of white paper so that you could keep track of what was going on in the sporting world or the newspaper world or the media world. They were very popular back then for use in media sources areas. Also quite expensive to operate and it's a major investment to not only have one of those devices but you're having to pay for the hookup to it as well. Now Detective Coffee testified the lottery materials were taken from behind a towel rack hidden in the women's restroom. This was located between a one-way door and the back room. The record book was taken from Mr. Elkins, according to the detective. Detective Troxler also testified that the intercom communication system had been taken from the rear of the barber shop and the rear of the cafe and that the ticker tape machine was taken from the rear of the barber shop. The barber shop and the cafe in the rear room were not connected by a doorway, but they were connected by this intercom system. Now, as I read the article, they were actually connected by this one-way door. I'm assuming that by reading it, it was a way to just go out, but nobody could come in. I'm not exactly sure how that worked. The detectives also testified about a warning light switch the rating officers had found behind the one-way door. The switch was connected to a light in the rear room, which could be blinked as a warning to anyone who may have been operating a gambling program in the back room. Coffee went back to the stand and testified that when Midlands was confronted about the possibility of gambling going on in the property he was in charge of, Midlands answered by misdirection by claiming the property was being subleased by someone else and directed the detective to speak to that leasee. Assistant Police Chief Sluter testified that he probably had visited 102 College Street, the barbershop, 60 times or more in the recent year, but he had never found any evidence as to the place being operated as a gambling house. He had arrested approximately 10 people there who were found to have lottery tickets on their persons, 
but this was not a gambling house. Davis was the only one of the four defendants who took the stand in his defense when he testified that he had left the College Street address last November having sold his interest to someone else, started a new business on Riverside, the Riverside Club. He relinquished his beer license at 102 College Street, the restaurant area, and secured a new license at the Riverside Club, and he denied any connection with the place from last November until March 29th or 30th, at which time he paid the rent because the person who had been subleased to hadn't been paying it, so in order to not ruin his credit history, he had paid part of the rent himself. Uh, Mr. Elkins was arrested at the time of the raid, and three other defendants were arrested and charged later in the day. This is the second time that Mr. Midlands had been named in connection with this particular property and with other gambling charges. He was also named in a padlock proceeding against the establishment in 1952, but the action was dropped. Judge Sam McCarthy presided and Solicitor Will Hampton handled the prosecution for the state. The hearing itself, hearing of testimony and presentation of evidence, took almost five hours following the regular session of the court. So we have our detectives in our police department in Asheville working very diligently in 1955, dealing with individuals that had three years ago also been involved in gambling issues and being arrested as well. Now let's drop forward a little bit to 1977. Area, the Asheville citizen, newspaper article by Billy Pritchard leads out with tavern operators charged with gambling. A number of Asheville area tavern operators were charged with gambling violations at a meeting in Raleigh of the North Carolina Board of Alcohol Beverage Control. The law had changed quite a bit since then and Alcohol Board of Control had been set up in the state of North Carolina. They governed the regulation and licensing of alcohol establishment as well as enforcing gambling law. Now the first in the first location that was mentioned in the newspaper article was the Rock Hut located on US 70 East and operated by Richard Collins. It had its beer license suspended for 30 days on a charge that allowed persons to gamble on the premises in the month of April. A Miss Margaret Hunter Fortune was charged with being intoxicated on the premises of her Valley Park grocery and given a 30-day suspension on her permit and given a 30-day suspended sentence and her permit for selling of alcohol was suspended for a year. Note to self, don't drink and sell. Mr. Carlisle Clinton Owenby was charged with possession of gambling devices and his license was suspended as well for 90 days, although the suspension is only against him, not against the tavern itself. So business was allowed to operate, his liquor license was lost for 90 days, and he was charged with possession of gambling devices. Apparently the tavern itself was not. Mr. Owenby also was connected to the sports lounge on US 1923 West, and the ruling there of his license did allow or state that another proprietor could obtain a license and operate that establishment as long as Mr. Owenby was not connected. A one-day suspension of the permit at the Elks Lodge on 6th Avenue West in Hendersonville was also 
suspended for one year, which I think is interesting. You, They were given a one-day suspension of the permit, yet that one-day suspension was suspended for one year. The lodge had been charged with possession of intoxicating liquor and improper storage of liquor. Apparently, they had only a, a beer-only permit. Now, at the Waynesville Pool Room on Balsam Road, Tommy Ray Burns was charged with allowing gambling material on his premises and allowing other persons to gamble there. Again, that was gambling raid by the Alcohol Beverage Control Board that happened in 1977. Regulating of morality is a difficult job. This may be why the state got into the morality business itself, why they established a alcohol licensing board and then later on, we have the casino in Cherokee and the North Carolina State Lottery. I guess what they're saying, if you can't beat them, join them. All right. Thank you to my producers, Alice and Victoria. I do appreciate all that you guys are doing for me. And to my good friend, Mr. Alfred Dockery, editor, writer, advisor, proofreader, and as some say in the business, and I'm really still not sure why, Mr. Ewop. Five, four, three, two, one. You have been listening to the 542 in the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. You can find links to the podcast and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can be reached through the message portal on the contact page. This is Alice, podcast producer. Background theme Mystery Sex by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons. 2. 1. End.